Forgiveness, very common need, common struggle on forgiveness. And I would encourage you, if you missed it last Sunday, to listen. Um, I talked about the parable of the unforgiving servant. And the gist of that last Sunday was that the reason why, why we have such a hard time forgiven, forgiving is that we don't understand, first of all, what we have been forgiven and what we will continue to be forgiven for. But more than that, we don't understand what we've been released from, the freedom that we have in Christ. We don't understand all the blessings and benefits that the finished work of the cross has made available to us. We don't understand that we were bound and and, and like the king in that parable, we've been set free for, for life. We've been delivered from a death row sentence. And if you don't really get that, and if you don't understand all that God has done for you and made available to you in the way of freedom, freedom in every area of your life, if you don't understand that glorious freedom, you will have a hard time forgiving because you don't understand what Christ has done for you. So when you don't understand that you've been released from a prison, you will want to keep others in a prison, but actually it's yourself you're keeping in a prison when you don't forgive. So that was last, last Sunday. I heard on the news, and maybe you heard this too yesterday, that there was a, a hotel where people with a coronavirus were quarantined in China, and it, it collapsed. And from what I understand so far, it sounds like there was some kind of pillar uh, that was distorted, and, and the last I read, they didn't know if that happened during the renovations or if it was just a foundational structure problem. Wow, okay. So anyway, this this building collapsed on all these people. You know, the church has been called a hospital for broken people, for sick people, for spiritually ill people. That's what the church has been referred to. And it's true. We are, in a sense, kind of this, this hospital for people who are in need of the great physician, who are spiritually ill. And so we want to minister to people and see them delivered from, from sin, from spiritual sickness. And but if there's a structural problem, if there is a problem in our foundation and the basic foundation of the gospel, the basic way that God has called us to live, and the most basic way to live is to be people who walk in love and forgiveness. And if that is an issue at our foundation, we are in danger of imploding on ourselves as a church. We are in danger of collapsing when God has called us to be the very epicenter of healing for people. So we've got to get ourselves strong, right? We have got to make sure we have strong, solid foundations and that we are spiritually, structurally sound if we are to be that place of healing and protection for people coming in from the outside who are in need of healing. Psalm 11.2 says, Look, the wicked bend their bow, they make ready their arrow on the string that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. So there's a picture of the demonic forces aiming at us, wanting to take us down because Satan hates the church. 
And it goes on to say in Psalm 11:3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? There, we are powerless against an attack of the enemy if we are weak at our foundation. So that's why I'm talking about forgiveness, because forgiveness is foundational to the Christian life. It's foundational to the Christian life. So starting today, and uh, if I don't get through all of this, I'll continue it next week, I want to talk about five costs of unforgiveness. Unforgiveness, unforgiveness is the most costly, most expensive thing that has little value. Isn't that strange? It will cost you way beyond what you can even imagine. It will cost you in many ways. And yet, this thing that is so costly, so expensive, is of zero value. In fact, it's so damaging. It's like paying thousands of dollars for a drug that will absolutely destroy you. That's unforgiveness. So what does unforgiveness cost you? It's interesting. I want to talk about the coronavirus again because I'm sure you haven't heard about it enough, <laughs> haven't read about it enough. But let me give you a different angle. I heard in the past couple weeks two prophetic voices. These are people who have kind of a prophetic edge in the church at large. They're well-known, sort of, and, you know, people with this gifting, God kind of gives them prophetic messages for the church. They kind of can, they're kind of like seers. You know, they hear from God and, and they have very specific messages to the church concerning things that are happening. I heard two different prophets talk about the coronavirus, and they both were coming from a completely different angle, and they both said something very different. And yet, I, I completely agree with both of them, because that's why we need each other. God gave each of them a different message concerning this virus, and they are both absolutely true. The first was a lady, and, and she said, um, God is showing me this is way worse than, than they're making it out to be. Okay, whether or not you believe that is immaterial at this point. That's irrelevant, but let me get to the point. She said, if you want to be protected from this virus, you need to stop living in sin. She said, if, if you are practicing witchcraft, if you're involved in the occult, new age, if you are deliberately, willfully, consciously sinning, like something that you know you have no business doing as a professing believer, you need to stop right now because you're, you're unprotected. And she talked about, you know, fornication, sex outside of marriage, um, deliberate abuse of drugs, and getting into... Um, you know, dark, dark things that are not of God, things that invite bad spirits into your life. She said, you need to stop right now because that disobedience will make you unprotected. And I totally agree. I totally agree. I tell my kids, I tell my kids, you know, God's love for you is unconditional 100%. He will never stop loving you. No matter how far you fall to the bottom of the slime pit, God will never stop loving you. His love is absolutely unconditional. But his blessings, the benefits of belonging to him, of being the people of God, his protection, his healing, prosperity, those are conditional on your obedience. 
It amazes me. <laughs> it just amazes me so much that people think they can live any way they want and consciously, willfully disobey God's precepts. And then things fall apart, things go wrong, they come to me for prayer. As if God will just bail them out and let them keep on living the way they're living. It's astonishing. God's protection, his benefits, healing, prosperity, protection are part of our conditional on obedience. Now, notice I'm not saying all those things are guaranteed because we live in a fallen world. We deal with people with fallen natures. And sometimes God allows us to go through stuff because he's interested in refining us, okay? So I'm not saying that all these things are guaranteed. There are churches that will preach that. You are guaranteed to be prosperous if you... Da, da, da. No, that's not here. That's not us. But the principle, the principle is that if you live your life in obedience to God, you put yourself under the umbrella of his blessing and his protection. So I agree with that concerning this virus. Now is the time to get right with God. <laughs> There's never been a better time than the present with the spreading of this virus to really examine our lives and making sure, am I living to the best of my ab ability in obedience to the word of God? Because I'd say if you're living in sin and you know it, you should be very concerned. This other prophet said this. He said something like, um, how do, somebody sent this to me. Maybe my sister did. He said, faith is, is the antidote for this virus. Faith is what will kill this virus. And I totally agree with that. It's like Phyllis just said, I totally agree. Now is an opportunity to rise up and put our faith in God and claim promises like Psalm 91, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. Amen. I agree with that as well. We, our faith is probably, perhaps, if some people are right, our faith is about to be really tested in this area of healing and protection. <clears throat> but what I noticed, and what I'm noticing, and all the things that prophetic voices are saying about this virus... Not, that, not yet that I have heard, no one mentions unforgiveness and bitterness. Maybe someone has said it. I haven't heard anyone say it. And here's the thing. I think that we can be all right on the outside. We can be so full of faith. What does it say in 1 Corinthians 13? Though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, and though I have not love, it profits me nothing. Your faith means nothing to God if you're not walking in love and forgiveness, kindness, patience, not easily provoked. Love does not envy. Love does not react. Love does not parade itself. Love is not puffed up. Love is not easily provoked. 1 Corinthians 13 says, hey, it doesn't matter how strong your faith is if you're not walking in love. By the same token, we can have everything right on the exterior as far as, as far as following God's laws. We can be living in a way that outwardly is very pleasing to God, but if inside we are eaten up with bitterness, 
we're in trouble. I really do believe that. I think now is a really good time with, with this, the threat of this virus, it's a really good time to examine our hearts and say, God, is there anything in my attitude, in my heart of hearts, am I harboring anything toward a brother or a sister or a neighbor or a family member or an employee or an employer? Am I harboring something that will hinder me from receiving divine protection and stopping the flow of blessing into my life? Because it absolutely will. And I want to I develop that thought. <clears throat> In 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, you can read this on your own, just jot it down. We don't have to turn there because I've got a lot of notes. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul refers to us as, he says, you are one bread and one body. So that bread that we partake of when we take communion, that represents, yeah, Jesus, the bread of life, but also us because we are nourishment for one another. And Paul says, you are one bread and one body. So he calls us the body of Christ. And then in the very next chapter, 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says something astonishing. And very few people notice this. You rarely hear this preached about. Paul says, when you come together, examine your hearts and make sure that you don't partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And I've always been taught, and I think this is true, I've always been taught that that means make sure you're not living in sin, right? Because you don't want to part, or make sure that you actually are, you're a child of God, you know, examine your heart and make sure that you've been uh, redeemed by the blood of Jesus so that you are, so that he, you understand his blood makes you worthy to receive of communion. And that's true, but there's something that says, let's actually go there, 1 Corinthians 11. First Corinthians 11, uh, verse 27. First Corinthians 11, 27. Therefore, whoever eats of this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself... And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. What is it we're supposed to examine ourselves for when we come to the Lord's table? Verse 29, for he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself. Now here it comes. He's about to tell us what causes us, what is this unworthy manner that we have to be careful about? And he says it right there. Uh, in verse 29, he eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Discerning means recognizing. When you and I gather together and we've got bitterness or unforgiveness towards someone, we are failing to recognize this is the body of Christ. This person is part of the same body of Christ that I belong to, and Jesus Christ is our head. And when I hurt this person, I'm hurting the body of Christ. I mean, we'd never do that, literally. And when I refuse to forgive this person, I'm harboring anger toward the body of Christ. That is called not discerning the Lord's body. 
And we should pay close attention to these sobering words in verse 30. It says, for this reason, for this reason, many are weak and sick among you. And many sleep. Literally means are dead. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. So God, help us to examine ourselves. Father, and I, am I in any way refusing to discern the Lord's body? Am I forgetting that these people you have put me with, this family you have put me into, this is the body of Christ, and I am to recognize them as such because when I recognize you as part of the body of Christ, I will treat you with tenderness, with compassion. I will forgive you readily and quickly and very willingly because you're part of the body of Christ. So there's a very clear, can you see the very clear connection between physical health, physical health and forgiveness? Can you see it? So the first cost of unforgiveness is physical health. This is medically proven. Perhaps you know that. It it, it not only causes... um, a spiritual unhealth which affects your physical health, as I just read, but it, it is scientifically proven to cause uh, Ill, Ill, illness. Dr. Karen Schwartz of John Hopkins Hospital said that unforgiveness causes a change in heart rate, blood pressure, and your immune response. Hear that. Immune response. There was a study done by the Mayo Clinic that said uh, the decision to forgive results in improved mental health, lower blood pressure, stronger immune system, improved heart health, improved self-esteem and mental health. Psychologist Robert Enright of the University of Wisconsin wrote an article. It was published in the Seattle Times, and he said this, quote, The article was called The New Science of Forgiveness, The New Science of Forgiveness, in which he said, forgiveness diminishes chronic pain, improves cardiovascular function, and relieves depression. What do you know? Well, the Bible told us this first. I don't know why we... uh, have to have it confirmed by science because it says in Proverbs 17, 22, a merry heart does good like a medicine, but a broken spirit dries the bones. You can't really have a merry heart if you're all eaten up with bitterness and unforgiveness, can you? A merry heart does good like a medicine, but a broken, that is a wounded spirit, dries the bones. So, Unforgiveness, first of all, will cost you and me physical health. Scientifically proven, backed by the word of God. (laughs) Number two, it will cost you and me personal relationships, including the most important ones. In this case, many times forgiveness is an ongoing daily decision, isn't it? Second Corinthians 10, verses 4 to 6. 
2 Corinthians 10, 4 to 6. See, we forget this. We think that we're fighting against flesh and blood. But there's an enemy of our soul behind every relational mishap that comes our way. And Satan would use strife to take us down because he does not want us furthering the kingdom of the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom. So 2 Corinthians 10, starting with verse 4, says, The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they're not fleshly, they're not physical, but they are mighty and God for pulling down strongholds. Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Now pay attention to this next part because this is something you and I have to do a lot of times when we can't forgive someone. I've had to do this. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. You ever have a thought that's not according to the obedience of Christ? You ever had a thought of someone, you know, those, those, those offenses that you love to nurture and you mull over them and you rehearse them and you rehash them? It begins with a thought. Jesus said, out of the, the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So whatever's in your heart, it's going to come out. Whatever's in your heart towards someone, it will come out. You can only stop that if you rest it at the thought, at the thought. So bring every thought into captivity. When I start to have a thought that I know is a thought of bitterness towards someone or unforgiveness, I st- Lord, I'm sorry. Sometimes I'll just start, I'll start speaking in tongues. I'll pray in the spirit. I'll just pray, Lord. I will not entertain this thought. Bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And here's why. We really need to pay attention to this next part. Being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. You want someone's disobedience punished? Get your act together. Fulfill your own obedience. Then it's as though you, in a sense, legally free God up, in a sense, to go and work on that person. But you've got to get your heart right. We've got to walk in obedience in the way of forgiveness bringing every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Unforgiveness will cost us. Sometimes it will cost us the most important relationships in our life. And I know this is complex and there's levels, there are tiny offenses and there's huge wounds. I know this. And this is a process. And God will help us. And we're going to continue to develop this thought. But you know what? I, in my life, I can tell you I've almost thrown away perfectly good, wonderful friendships because of some offense, because I refused to stop nursing that grudge. (laughs) I just kept entertaining it and feeding that thought, and it grew and consumed me. Forgiveness is an ongoing daily decision. Number three, see right now, today I'm just, this is kind of still an outline. I'm just outlining what unforgiveness costs us. Uh, We'll get into the how. How do you do it? How do you know you've done it? Number three, for unforgiveness, 
Unforgiveness will cost a blessing to many people, even people you don't even know. I can tell you for an absolute fact, one person's unforgiveness can cost an entire community. Unforgiveness has a ripple effect. It does collateral damage far beyond what you can even imagine. Unforgiveness costs a blessing to entire communities. Sometimes just because one person refuses to forgive. Psalm 133 commands a blessing. In Psalm 133, it says, Behold, Psalm 133.1, Behold how good and how pleasant it is. Psalm 133.1, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And if you go down farther in that chapter, I'm not sure what verse, but toward the end of that same chapter, it talks, it says, there the Lord commands a blessing. Where does the Lord command a blessing? Where people dwell together in unity. For there the Lord commands the blessing. Now think of this. If God commands a blessing on a community that is in unity, if God commands a blessing where there's unity, what on earth do you think God commands where there's disunity? and unforgiveness. What's the opposite of a blessing? You want God to bring a blessing on your community, your neighborhood, your village? Walk in unity. Forgive. Don't wait for the person to come apologize to you. Forgive. That's what forgiveness is. That's what forgiveness is. We wouldn't call it forgiveness if it wasn't easy, if it was easy. Forgive. Actually, I'm just realizing, forgive, it kind of sounds like you're giving something ahead of time before you have the apology. I'm going to give you this. I'm going to forgive this extension of love to you before you even come to me and make it right. I'm going to forgive you. Hebrews 12 Starting with verse 14, Hebrews 12, 14 says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness. Note those two go hand in hand. Hebrews 12, 14. Pursue peace with all people. It doesn't say pursue peace with the people you really like. Pursue peace with the people who are easy to get along with. That's easy. I got peace with those people. Pursue peace with those who are compatible. <laughs> no. It says pursue peace with all people and holiness because those two go hand in hand. You want to be holy? Forgive. Without which no one will see the Lord. Whoa. I think that just said that if I'm not pursuing peace with everyone, I'm not going to actually see the Lord. I think it just said that. Is that what it says? Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. You ever tried to pull up a full-grown burdock weed? They're nasty. I haven't, I read and read and read about how to kill those things. It's almost impossible. 
And you can't, and, but how does it start with this tiny little root? Before you know it, you've got this impossible monster weed that you can't get rid of. That's what bitterness is. It's this tiny little root. Something does something to you. It offends you. It takes root in your heart. It says, look carefully for that. Look carefully. Look carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up. Before you know it, that root, that weed springs up in your heart. And what happens? It causes trouble, first of all, for you. But it doesn't stop there. And by this, many become defiled. Your root of bitterness can absolutely poison an entire community. It can. Because words spread. Words are like weeds. Your words will either be a life-giving, nurturing plant, or it will be a weed. And your words will spread like weeds. It will spread in the mouths of other people, and many will become defiled, poisoned, by one teeny tiny little root of bitterness springing up in your heart. That's why it says, look carefully for that. Pull out those weeds before they get too big to pull out. Because eventually it's like, wow, this, I can't get rid of this. Number four, unforgiveness will cost you your calling. You say, what? Yeah. It will cost you, it will keep you from completely fulfilling your calling. John Bevere in his book, The Bait of Satan, highly recommend it if you're having problems with forgiveness. The Bait of Satan by John Bevere. Read it, The Bait of Satan. In that book, he says this, unforgiveness will cause you to be unable to function properly in your calling. Yeah, you may be functioning in your calling, but not properly. It will cause you to be handicapped and hindered from fulfilling your true potential. That is so true. I've experienced this in my life. I've experienced where I know absolutely that my bitterness and my unforgiveness is hindering me from being everything God wants me to be. It'll hold you back. It will cost you your calling. Number five, And finally, unforgiveness will cost you your relationship with God himself. It's true. It will hinder it at the very least. It will hinder it at best. Did you know that God will not hear your prayer if you are harboring bitterness and unforgiveness? You say, what? That's a little harsh, Faith. Well, Psalm 66, 18 says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Actually, in another place in 1 Peter, it says to husbands, husbands, if you don't treat your wives with honor, God won't hear your prayer. Scary stuff. But this is for everyone, Psalm 60, 66, 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Iniquity is different from transgression in the scripture. Transgression are those outward sins. Iniquity is the inward attitude, the inward attitude. If I see it in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. He won't hear your prayer. He won't accept your worship. 
In Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, starting with verse 23, Jesus says some very sobering words to us regarding worship when we have unforgiveness in our heart. He says, if you bring your gift to the altar, okay, in these days that was worship. They brought their sacrifice to the altar. When we come in here and we lift our hands and we sing, we are bringing our gift to the altar. Same thing, right? If you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. It doesn't even say whether you did anything wrong or not. It says you just are aware, you remember, your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. Do you hear that? God is saying, don't even bother worshiping. Don't even bother. Leave your worship be and go your way and first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Whoa. I think Jesus is saying here that he's much more interested in the condition of our heart toward our brother and sister than the worship we bring to him. I think that's what he's saying here. Does that look like that to you? Leave your gift, leave your worship alone, go your way, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Finally, on that third note, hinders your relationship with God, it will cost you your joy. There's a psalm that says, create in me a clean heart, Psalm 5110. Create in me a clean heart, O God, a clean heart, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners shall be converted to you. See, this is talking about ministry. What, are, what has God called us to do? To teach transgressors his ways, to convert sinners to him. But we have no business doing that if we don't have joy, if we have a heavy spirit, if we are downtrodden with bitterness and unforgiveness. I'm going to close with a story. Perhaps you're familiar with Corey Ten Boom. She was, uh, went through the concentration camp at Ravensbrück during World War II. She lost her sister Betsy in that awful place. Horrible, horrible torture, starvation, of course. You've read what it was like. In 1947, she was speaking at a church in Munich. This was a few years after she'd been released from the concentration camp, and she had started traveling and speaking. Now, she, was, she, was, um, her, she came from a Dutch family, and she was imprisoned for harboring Jews in her home, okay? She was arrested and imprisoned by the Nazis. So now she's been released, and she's traveling around, and she's speaking. And she's speaking at a church in Munich in 1947, and she says this, and I quote, At the close of the service... A balding man in a gray overcoat stepped forward to greet her. Okay, this is actually from Eric Metaxas' book, uh, Seven Great Women and How They Ch Changed the World or something like that. Um, so he's telling her story. At the close of the service, a balding man in a gray overcoat stepped forward to greet her. Corey froze. She knew this man well. 
He'd been one of the most vicious guards at Ravensbrook, one who had mocked the women prisoners as they showered. It came back with a rush, she wrote. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. And now he was pushing his hand out to shake hers, saying, a fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, Corey writes, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him, and I remembered the leather crop swinging from his belt. I was face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I, whose sins had again and again to be forgiven, could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place, her sister. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? The soldier stood there expectantly, waiting for Corey to shake his hand. She wrestled with the most, she says, quote, I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. For I had to do it, I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. Standing there before the former SS man, Corey remembered that forgiveness is an act of the will, not an emotion. Jesus, help me, she prayed. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. Corey thrust out her hand. As I did, she writes, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried. With all my heart, I forgive you. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. But even so, I realized it was not my love. I had tried and did not have the power. It was the power of the Holy Spirit. That's from Seven Women and the Secret of Their Greatness by Eric Metaxas. Someone asked me, how do you know when, how do you know when you've forgiven someone? 
I have a start to that answer. I'm not, I'm not an authority on the subject. I'm sure there's more, but what comes to mind right away is you no longer have a need to constantly rehash it. It no longer comes out of your mouth because you have arrested that thought in your heart. You've brought it into captivity to the obedience of Christ. You have uprooted that tiny little weed that's starting to spring up. You've uprooted it before it got big enough to flow out of your mouth. You're no longer rehashing. Now, it's okay if you need to go tell a counselor or to just tell someone what you're dealing with. That's fine. That's different. I'm talking about constantly rehashing, rehashing. And number two, when you no longer want revenge, you no longer feel a desire in your heart to get even. You know why? Because you can trust God as a just judge. You leave vengeance to him. You leave justice to him. You can, can you, look, can you trust God to convict the person who wronged you? So many times in my life, I take it upon myself to be the convictor. Like I try to steal the Holy Spirit's job. I'm going to convict this person. I'm going to show them how wrong they are because they don't see it. Stealing the Holy Spirit's job. He is quite capable of convicting the person who has wronged you. You leave it to him. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Also, I want to tell you, get counseling. Therapy is good. It's not a bad thing. Find a godly, biblical counselor who will give you counsel from the word of God and go. Because maybe God will use that person to help you in your healing. There's a place for that. But sometimes, I dare say most of the time, the Holy Spirit is a wonderful counselor. He's a wonderful counselor. You already know what you need to do. We just heard it. You just go and sit before God, talk to him, tell him everything. You can rehash it to God. You can tell him all, all the glory. You can tell him everything. You can rehash it safely to God. But you leave it there. And you trust him. And maybe like Corey Ten Boone, you have to extend your hand, first of all, to God and say, I can't do this. But I believe in miracles, God, and I need you to work the miracle of forgiveness in my heart. And then by a sheer act of your will, he may direct you to go, leave your gift at the altar, and go make it right. One more thing. I was reading in Matthew 7, you can read this, the story of the, uh, where Jesus says, if you see that your brother has a, a speck in his eye, he says, if you try to help him, but you don't realize there's a plank in your own eye, you're not going to be able to help get the speck out of his eye. Jesus says, first remove the plank from your own eye. And then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. You notice that Jesus says it's okay to go ahead and remove that speck from your brother's eye. It's okay. It's okay to say, hey, look, can I help you deal with something that you may not be realizing because this is going to injure you. It's okay. But you have to first remove the plank from your own eye. You know what I think that plank is most of the time? Pride. Pride here, let me help you. Let me help get rid of this speck. And we've got this huge plank called pride. 
and we can't even see. You know what you're going to do if you try to remove a speck from someone's eye with a plank in your own eye? You're going to blind them. You're going to hurt them tremendously. So the first step toward forgiveness is dealing with the pride. Get rid of the plank. Well, that's about reconciliation. That's really another message. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Lord, I thank you for showing me where I have attempted to remove specks from people's eyes and I've got a huge plank in my own eye thinking I'm, I've so arrived, I'm so much more mature, I'm so much farther along. And Father, forgive me for that. Help me to get rid of the plank. Lord, remove all pride from my heart so that I can, with humility and compassion, help my brother and sisters. And Father God, those of us today who are struggling with unforgiveness, would you help us remember that you are a good convictor, Holy Spirit? You know how to bring conviction. It's not our job. And Lord, like we prayed last week, would you help us be willing to want to forgive? Would you help us want to want to please you? Would you help us take that first step toward you saying, I want to want to forgive. Father, we need your help. We need your help, Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray for freedom, for a release of forgiveness to flow in this body in the name of Jesus. I pray against every hindering spirit that would eat away at the structure of this body, this congregation, seeking to um, destroy us. I pray against every hindering spirit that would use bitterness and offenses to damage our foundation. In the name of Jesus, we thank you, Prince of Peace, that you rule and reign in this place, and I ask that you would rule and reign in our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. And thank you, Lord, for this amazing food. I think we have pork chops today. So stay and enjoy. You are dismissed. <laughs>